0: Hello, and welcome to episode 61 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Jonathan Klinsma. Jonathan is a threat researcher at RiskIQ, leading threat response and analysis efforts with the help of RiskIQ's expansive dataset. Both his work and hobbies focus on threat intelligence in the form of profiling threat actors, as well as analyzing and taking apart the means by which digital crime groups work. Outside of work, Jonathan likes taking things apart and figuring out how they work, be it physical devices or digital, like malware or ransomware. He's a regular presenter at industry conferences such as DEF CON and is quoted in Wired, Fox News, CNET, and Krebs on Security, just to name a few. In this episode, we discuss his start in information security, his current security research, MageCart, web application security, website asset management, supply chain security, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Jonathan, thank you for joining me on cybersecurity interviews. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, so, for those that might not know a little bit about some of the stuff you've been working on, kind of uh, step us through your history and kind of how you got to uh, kind of Risk IQ and what you're what you're doing today.
1: So it's a it's a it's not per se a really long history. Um, I did a study in IT. I actually did game design and game development. So the technical side of it, lots of low-level development. Um, it just gave me a very strong uh, development background. And my only thing was I just wanted to get a stronger background in development. That was all I was for. Um, game development just was a good angle because it's visual programming. And I feel that if you're developing something or you're trying to figure something out, having a visual aid is you know, really good. It helps really well. Um, and then... Um, my thing was figuring out how other people were building things. And a lot of times this came down to their code, analyzing their code and taking it apart. Um, and this sort of evolved into um, malware analysis, which was what I was doing uh, some time ago. I still do it occasionally, um, but it was a lot of Windows malware and I sort of got um, introduced into the industry by joining a company called Fox IT. Um, that's quite some years ago, I think 2011 somewhere. Um, and then I was there for quite some years, I think five or six years. And I had a I had a few friends who were working over at RiskIQ and they had a pretty unique angle. Um, at RiskIQ, Risk we basically do um, the, the, the website of things, so everything on the outside. So we basically scan the entire internet, um, both like IPv4 and every website that's online. We try to visit it and we do it multiple times over uh, over time, so we have a history. Um, and that sort of, I was introduced to this whole data and this gathering of data they were doing through a couple of friends who were working at RiskIQ. And then I think a year later, um, I ended up joining RiskIQ. Uh, and since then, um, I've been just going through the data. Um, my position is uh, a researcher position. So it's, it's a little bit of development, a little bit of looking at what our products can do, how can we improve it, to figuring out maybe there's a, a new product angle that's in there. Uh, but it, in general, I'm just sort of, I'm in a big sandbox and I'm just going around seeing what we've got and what's interesting and, you know, how we can improve all of this.
0: So imagine your technology is a little bit more than Nmap and Burp Sweep to, to a scan a slash eight of the internet and all the things.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do, we do quite a bit more. Um, so our crawling, for example, um, we, we we have sort of a, a profile of when we crawl. So our crawler is what we call virtual users. So they visit a website and they can um, click through the website. We, we can give it strategies to click through. So we can say, just click through as you get the links on the webpage or randomly click through. Um, we'll fire off events. We'll you know, go around in depth around the website. Um, we can... You know, put different profiles, different browsers, all that stuff. Um, We can go, I think we have like 120 plus uh, breakout points. So we have a proxy network around the globe. So when we say we're Chrome and we're coming from like China, for example, we can actually proxy through China because a lot of times we'll see geo filtering um, and we tend to use this to go around it. Um, Now, when we're crawling, we're collecting not just like the pages you're getting, we're collecting the response from the server and then the final calculated DOM, so the, the final page, what it looks like, all the changes that happened, everything that was executed, everything that was requested. Um, we sort of have this whole like trace view um, going on. And from that, we, we extract a bunch more information, which we build data sets with. So one thing we do is we extract what we call components. And components are nothing more than the pieces that make a website work. So it could be the Apache server that's giving the content to the jQuery UI library you're using to uh, generate uh, the, the website content for example um, we pull that information out and we sort of have a first scene and last scene um, for all those things so we can see when people are like upgrading their PHP installations or Apache installations because we'll have versioning with those and we can see over time you know the changes um, But it goes both ways. We can also ask, "Give me any host that was online between X and Y time, that was running PHP version something," and it will, you know, it's sort of like it gives us pivot points. Um, And another piece we extract is what we call um, attributes, and attributes are like small trackable pieces of information. So, for example, um, Google Analytics IDs, uh, which are like the the analytic IDs that are tied to a Google account, so people can have like a dashboard to see what's going on on their website, how people are converging around their website. Um, We actually pull these out and we have the same concept of going back and forth. So we know on a website like these IDs for trackers and analytics providers were used, but we can also say, so give me any other website that was also running the same tracker um, or analytics ID. Um, And We we do the same for our scan. So this concept of of attributes, a trackable piece of information and components to Explain what what a service technically is built up off. Um, we do the same in our scans. So our our network scans aren't just you know you got port eighty and port four four three open. It's you got this port open during this time and it was running this version at this time of product X and you had product Y in there as well. Um, these were your configuration options and you know there's there's a lot of metadata involved. It's you not know, just a sort of a flat scan um, and with my team, what we actually do, because we're a research team, we also generate our own rules to find malicious stuff. So if we're talking about MageCard, which is something we've been publishing about the past months, or actually years, um, it's it's web-skimming to get payment information. Now, my team, what we do is we build rules, and these rules are like small scripts, which evaluate, uh, evaluate what happened in the crawl, and we will blacklist if something like MageCard is going on or... If there's something else we find malicious or just off that you know things that shouldn't be happening, um, we'll we'll create like incidents off of crawl so we can say something bad happened in this crawl. Um, but yeah, it, it's a lot more than just flat scanning. There's there's a lot of steps involved, and basically what our thing is is large data collection, um, but at a really grand scale, so petabytes and petabytes of data, um, and we we have products which are just lenses on this data. So we have, for example, one product, um, which is our risk-acute Com- uh, community product. And basically, this is a sort of a, a lens that just gives raw data access, so you can view our raw different data sets. Um, but other products uh, will actually use a different view on the same data to you know, build up new conclusions. So with all that metadata we're collecting, for customers, for example, we can say, well, you're running this outdated version of Apache because we've... We do CVE mapping in there as well. Um, But it's also compliant. So we can tell them, you know, you're missing CSP headers or your SSL certificate is expiring in like two or three days, something like that. So there's a lot of small things to our crawling.
0: And it's interesting, you know, I think uh, with a lot of clients that I've worked with on this security prevention side, is so many people are so focused on their general infrastructure, maybe some things that are on the edge on a firewall, but don't necessarily think about all the... Things that can happen uh, from a, a web server, and it—they almost sometimes fall under the management and care and, and feed and uh, you know, visual or, or the visibility of say a marketing department. But then, you know, people don't think about how many things can happen through a website, or that they can even be a launch pad for other types of attacks.
1: Yeah, it's actually it's it's pretty broad and. It actually goes further because a lot of people will have this sort of mapping and insight of, to what they own that's online, but it isn't always representative of what actually all of this looks like online. And what we see a lot of times, and that's sort of what, what we call our own strengths, is we can identify things you didn't know you own. because so we have all these data sets, and we can basically, if we have a website uh, of your company, we can look at all the other pages we've ever seen that look exactly the same, we also have all these metadata sets where we can sort of pivot through and find what you probably also own but you didn't know. Um, a lot of times, you know, if if there's a marketing campaign, maybe they they set up some domain names, they they set up some servers to, you know, push some kind of campaign of uh, advertisement. Um, you know, IT might not be fully aware, might be sort of aware because they had to help to set some stuff up, but it's not in the CMDB. Um, and that's that's the kind of stuff we pull out. Um, there's even there's even more we see so um, something that's uh, kind of interesting sometimes you see that people use their corporate email addresses to register domains that aren't owned by the company themselves um, and that creates like weird, weird HR situation especially if those people have been let go, they own the domain name but it's on the email address from their work at the time but they want to do something with it but they need to get back to that email, you know, that It's the kind of stuff we're able to sort of uh, bring up that you normally wouldn't really see Um, because everybody has this sort of inside view of I own these services and I'm maintaining these things. Um, And, you know, you can do a port scan and it will tell you, you know, ports are open. Um, But it's really valuable to actually know what's happening on there. You know, what do you actually have exposed?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I was kind of rallying on some point lately one of the slack channels on part of that you know it's crazy that we we focus on the security and two-factor and identity management around Um, so many of the cloud services but when it comes to just something simple as registering a website um if if that goes down and you lose access to your dns um ability you you can be either you know just even by negligence like you said if somebody leaves and you can't log in and it expires and all of a sudden you have you can have a loss of availability or somebody could attack that and repoint things it's kind of that weak link that people don't think about is it's just it's just a website what what bad can happen
1: yeah, and you know it's even as simple as just forgetting to renew an SSL certificate, and if it's like on an endpoint, that uh, for example, you're like a, a provider of some kind of you know endpoint product, um, and one of your services is online, and then your SSL certificate expires, none of your clients will be able to update. It will just break completely. We, we've seen this happen a ton of times. Um, so you know you have your big oh my god they can break in. I have these you know old things running. It's also compliancy. That goes pretty far. Like our simple things, from just like SSL certificate expiry monitoring, is one um, of like a whole list we do. Uh, But it's even the small things that can completely like you know wipe out um, productivity in your company.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting too. Is you know when people think about that overall development of the site again just it's it's got this very visual aspect to it there certainly is a marketing point but as we push more things towards web and cloud services i think some of the things that you're seeing with like mage card and other um types of issues that are coming up there's there's coding issues that could exist there that can uh be a serious uh, issue for your business if it's exploited
1: yeah and like some of the angles we see with this mage card um stuff it's there's some there's some things that people really didn't consider. So we, we've had this era of everybody getting ads on their web page, putting analytics providers, doing like adding all these third party providers so you don't have to build it yourself, which is fine. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. If somebody else has a really round wheel, you don't want to try to do the same thing. Um, but what people aren't realizing is if you give these you know, if you give these companies access um, to your website through them running some kind of code or you're running their code for them. If they get compromised, you get compromised. It's it's like a, it's the supply chain attack you have physically uh, or with like software updates. It's also on the web. And there's one of these criminal groups which we track on our Mage Guard. We call them MageCard Group Five. Um, and their entire MO is compromising third parties. And they've been doing this since 2016 very successfully so, um, the Ticketmaster breach is uh, attributed to them. They they figured, you know, we can't really breach a large organization like that directly because they'll have their security up to snuff. But these external parties, their business is whatever they're doing, be it analytics or providing some kind of functionality. Um, they probably don't have security, you know, at that high of a standard. It's probably in there like sort of a compliancy and, and like sensible thing when you're developing. Um but it's not their core business, so you, you, we see them get compromised, and it's just not something they're used to. It's not something that's in their ecosystem of business. Uh, but by extension, they get compromised, and these huge, huge retailers and online organizations get compromised as well.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see, even see, but some of the issues are, as you say, it's kind of a supply chain and third-party risk management issue that's almost, I wouldn't say ignored, but it's not always uh, focused on, let's say. Um, and some of these can be, you know, I wouldn't say simple, but, you know, it, the types of things that you wouldn't necessarily say are terribly complex. You know, it could be a JavaScript code that's just... Uh, it does a function on a website that yeah you weren't expecting it to do, and it's that often. And maybe you can shed some light to it coming from a developer world. But you know when we do application and code development, a lot of times the developers will come come push back at me and say, well, you know it's it's not supposed to do that. You sh- it's not supposed to break like that. I'm like I I understand that, but when it does, that's where we that's where we can get exploits. Um, so how do you marry the the mindset of a developer? Uh, in that security realm so when they can say, geez, if this breaks, this could be a vulnerability.
1: It's really, really difficult. And like the best learning experience, sadly, is it just going wrong one time. And and, and that's just the thing. A lot of them, you know, when I, when I wasn't doing my study, it was a game development study. Um, looking back at it now, what we were doing, when we were developing some of the lower hardware stuff, so we were programming for PSP, Um, making frameworks for all of that. Going back to what we were doing, a lot of times, and that's, you know, companies like Sony obviously had to get their security higher and higher because people were doing stuff like jailbreaking. If you look at some of the early um, exploits that people used to do on on the PSP, for example, that was a developer who was loading a safe game um so when you're you know you're playing it was one of the GTA games um when you were playing that game you could save your state and then it would load it back up now somebody found out that the way they were handling this file wasn't really so nice because they were expecting a lot from this file they weren't per se checking a lot of like you know edge cases and somebody just figured well I can exploit this and the thing is as a game developer and as a normal developer with no influence of security it's not something you think about at all it needs to work and you're expecting this file format to be a certain you know kind of way. Obviously, you want to make sure if it corrupts. you know you're you got it handled and it doesn't break everything. Um, but these unique you know edge cases, there are some there's some basic um, like training they can obviously do to get more of a sense of you know um, what it is around security, you know what can happen. Um, give them a lot of examples and and rundowns of like issues that have appeared. But if if they're developing something with such a unique angle, it doesn't match like these examples they've had and security isn't their thing, it just has to go wrong. Or you have a good compliancy team which focuses on the security angle who then reviews it. Um, it's just very hard to be a developer and have security at a really high standard. Um, I have a friend who works in a, in a very different line of business. Um, it's sort of an... Uh, agriculture thing and he builds devices uh, which basically control like combines and all of this. And I found a vulnerability in one of these things, and I actually went up to Defcon and was presenting about it. Um, and He noticed that it was actually one of his appliances. So he was looking at it and he tried to internally like get it to people's minds like, this guy can control our combines remotely. He can steer our combine, something is wrong, we need to change this but it wasn't their focus. And he had a really hard time um, to actually get this through people's mind, even though like external guy, he doesn't own the combine, he can control the combine. It, it takes a very long time because they're not getting it. And that's one of those unique angles because the people that were developing that, that uh, product, they were like firmware developers. They were doing low level hardware controls and they weren't realizing, well, if I do this up in the chain of this whole product and the hardware that's connected, somebody can do this. And it would mean this. And that's just, it's very hard to do. So I think a compliance around it, like somebody who has this, you know, as their standard, as their thing to do, is probably a really good solution. Because otherwise, they just have to learn by, you know, like I said, having it go wrong one time.
0: A lot of times, too, I see uh, either CISOs or CIOs say, well, maybe we'll just drop in a web application firewall. It's as, as if somehow the fundamental coding practices that were flawed uh, can be ignored by that. But w- w- does that at times give people a false sense of security? Or sometimes people have said to me, well, look, it gives us at least some breathing room to then go back and fix the problems. So with some of these you know, appliances and shiny, blinky, lighty things, uh, do you feel that they give – the right type of security or the wrong.
1: Well, it kind of depends, and it's very. It depends on the situation in your organization. So, if you have the time um, and you know the the financial resources to go through this, and you know a lot of organizations do have this time, um, but a lot of them don't. You have a, a deadline for a project and a service you're maintaining, which you know creates income. Um, at times, just doing—you know—if you put a web application firewall in front of it, and then you go through fixing it, it's probably not the approach you want to take. But as long as that approach doesn't go wrong, they will keep using it. Especially if there's deadlines, and their focus is functional product over exact security deadlines. Now, it depends on what um, depends on what industry you're in. If you are in finance, and if you are a—you know—organization. Which main income is moving money around? Probably you're going to put a lot of financial resources in place to make sure that that process goes very well. Um, so it's it's kind of dependent on like from like we probably you and I we we don't want to see that as an approach, you know, make a product, put a firewall in front of it, and fix it later. That's it feels very bad, and it can go very bad. But for the situation for certain organizations, it's just how it goes and they will learn if it goes wrong. Once it goes wrong one time, you know it's over. Um, you see this with big organization, which sort of had their IT going and you know everything was fine. Then they get breached. They got a really big, big problem, big fines, all those things, and then they go back and then they do it right. It's sad that it has to happen, but it's the same with the developers. It goes wrong one time and then they'll do it right. Um, You know there are organizations. They do it right once. They get the right people in with the right mentality, but it's really difficult. There's a lot of people in information security, but there's not a lot of people that are of the highest standard. It's it's hard to get really really good people.
0: It seems to me too there could be a little bit of a a fundamental issue where people that are learning how to code, learning how to develop, in that kind of ecosystem, whether either learning online or in a collegiate uh, area. That they might not be getting that direction they might not be thinking about baking in security um, are, are you still seeing or feeling that's still kind of an issue um, as new developers and new talent kind of come to market
1: i think it is still an issue but it's gotten a lot better if you if you look at coverage and like news and everything you see you know if you talk about russia everybody now references to russia breaks into things hacks things influence things you know that's Uh, What it's going at, and this, like, even uh, I'm originally from the Netherlands. I moved to the U.S. about seven or eight months ago. In the Netherlands, it was, you know, in the in the news more and more that you know there was a hack of something. Somebody somebody hacked into this or hacked into that. So, if it is more active in mainstream media, you see more people thinking about it, and then you have the technical people that are doing development and all that, and they're making note of it. And if they are at a technical level, often they actually get interested in what the hell happened. You know what's going on. How did this work? Um, now it is, of course, not always the case. If you have a general um, like media programming um, like study, odds are they might do like a, a special side course where you, you know it doesn't really count for your grade, for example. But it's like a an extra thing you can do. Probably won't help that much. And again, it really depends on what kind of level of programming you go for. If you look at some of the, some of the studies where you're uh, doing like these microcontroller programming, so really low-level development, those guys are probably not going to get a whole lot of um, security programming in mind. Um, it's the same. It probably changed now in the game industry. Um, it's, it probably got better, but it's probably not that good yet. I was messing around with it, with the space and doing all of this uh, when I was doing my study, and I showed a couple of like corner cases with uh, um, assignments we had uh, for semesters, uh, and I just show you know I can I can abuse this. So a teacher had set up a web server, and I started spoofing my own stuff. So kind of like in a, in that what he had built was sort of a small game, and I started just spoofing network traffic so I could influence other people. Now that whole mindset was like. Oh my God! You can do this. That's that's a thing. Well, yeah, you can. You know, you can fake online traffic. That's not a. So it really depends on what industry, and I think major industries are getting this more and more, but not all of them. So it's it's getting better, um, but it's it's not an integral part of a lot of these uh, courses.
0: And you know, you bring up that you know certainly you're from from the Netherlands and and you're here in the United States now. And you know, the big topic of 2018 has certainly been GDPR. Do you think things like increased regulation, you know, whether it's effective or uh, even being fully, um, let's say, uh, tracked or even really being enforced at this point, still up to question? But at least bringing that discussion up, do you think further regulation can bring more visibility into these issues and maybe help get people closer to solving the problems?
1: Um, in a way, the problem is a law isn't good the first time, and it is also very open to interpretation on a technical aspect. So you can see this, for example, when they introduced uh, what we, what was called like the cookie law where you couldn't place cookies on a device unless somebody accepted and you had to have a whole compliance about did they actually you know click the accept button or are you doing something yourself? What the The point of that law, what they introduced, was not to have every website ask you to place cookies on their website. That was not the point at all. That's just how it was interpreted on a technical side. When they were reading it, they said, well, if I just add a button and I make it big enough that people technically just get annoyed and have to click through it, I can just put the cookies back on, and we're fine. The point was to reduce cookie-based tracking and reduce all of this. Uh, but all it did was add like one click and a few mouse movements to everybody's browsing experience. Um, now that's specific for the cookie law. Now GDPR goes—it um, goes into something we we had this in the Netherlands, which. So it translated uh, as your um, it translated as the duty to report a breach of information, which technically is what GDPR is for the entire EU. But we had this in the Netherlands, and it just meant that if an organization was breached, they had to report it to um, law enforcement. Um, if they did not, it was found out later that they didn't do it, because even though they were aware, um, they would be fined. Now with GDPR, you sort of get the same thing. There will be organizations that... You know it's a it's a big pain point because you you have to explain all of this. Um, you know you see that they spend a lot of times putting the wording just right for GDPR. So probably their problem is sort of dialed down a little bit of what the skill if it was, or the actual impact. Uh, and people are again sort of working around this. And you'll have companies that purposely don't report it. And what's even more interesting remember how the cookie law was sort of misinterpreted on the technical side on the web, when GDPR came into effect, there were U.S. websites which just started geo-blocking traffic from Europe and just said, we can't show the webpage to you because of GDPR, because we have tracking and all this stuff, um, and we just can't. Because they didn't feel like actually adding like all these controls in place and assurances that you know certain visitors were tracked in certain ways and others were tracked in other ways, because that's also part of GDPR. It's about, you know, when you get breached, you have to report this. Um, So, for example, organizations like Ticketmaster, because payment information was stolen through this web-skimming, they have to report, you know, because it contains PII, contains people's addresses, they have to report this uh, under EU regulations. Um, And that's a pretty obvious one, and it's sort of forced by hand because it was known that this incident happened. Um, But I'm pretty curious to see how many sort of late fees they'll be cashing in? How many organizations are either unaware or are aware but just don't want to file because of the repercussions out of it? Um, I think the law is going; it's the direction is good. The point is to figure out um, all this data owning of data and collection of data, uh, and when at it least it's a problem. Obviously, um, it's going the right way, but I feel it it will need some tuning and churning to make sure that people feel more obliged to actually um follow it because with the cookie law, they just add a button and you're sort of done you're good to go um with gdpr i think you you need to make it sort of interesting for companies to apply this there needs to be a benefit besides a downside right now there's a big downside if anything happens you have to report it and you get fined um you won't get fined if there was a really really good reason for it and it was just not your fault um But still, um, I think it's going the right direction. Um, Without regulations, we had the era of analytics tracking and all that stuff everywhere. Um, So it's a start. Um, I'm just curious where it will end up at.
0: Yeah, it's it's, still think it's in its infancy. And there's still a lot of other regs and laws around the world that are going to kind of dictate next steps. Um, One of the things I wanted to kind of touch on too was uh your kind of contributions to the community there seems to be quite a bit you've put out there as far as publications cves speaking what kind of drew you to giving back um, to the community and in all these different areas
1: um so for me what i like to do I, I like teaching that's a big thing i used to do it before i went into this industry um i would teach um c and c to kids for robotics So we we would uh, compete in in, um, soccer games with robots, and I would teach them the programming, you know, reading from sensors, um, get your robot to basically play soccer. um, And I love this teaching of it. So it was a big aspect um, for, you know, doing presentations and doing a lot of conference talks. I really enjoy doing those. Um, But my main thing is I like to solve puzzles, be it technical puzzles. And the reporting I do is usually... There's this thing, and I want to figure out what's going on with it. What is this? You know, it's the same with MaceCard. There's more to, to this. It's not just a one-off. We've been tracking it since 2016, but this is a thing, you know, how does it get bigger? What's, what else is going on? Um, and I've I've done this in previous reporting. Um, at Fox IT, I did a really big report called Mofang, and it basically broke down one of the uh, Chinese state groups and how they were backing some of their... Um, state-owned companies to make them uh, win in a sort of business competition um, to be able to be chosen as the organization that would build, uh, in this case, it was a harbor. There were sort of three companies competing um, and they wanted to get an up angle on, you know, what the decision would be and what they were deciding on. Um, and I just love love solving these puzzles and that's most what my uh, publication's are about. If it's just showing something off, you can pretty much assume there's something more coming or there's something behind it. Because um, if I do something, it's mostly to find something, solve something, um, and create a bigger picture. That's sort of my thing. Solve the puzzle of whatever I'm looking at and then explain it to people. And this can be articles, um, my own personal blog posts, conference talks, um, anything basically.
0: Is there anything uh, particularly new or exciting that you're researching or working on now?
1: So we've been talking about the MaceCard stuff quite a bit, um, but we actually have a large report coming out because um, we've we've been saying the word MaceCard a whole ton of times, and the concept behind this was to get it in people's minds because it's easier to use one term and people will start referencing this and getting the concept into their head. Um, and we're now at the point where people are starting asking questions saying, you're calling all of this Magecart, but is this really like one group, what's going on? Um, which is good, people are you know, paying attention because um, Magecart for us means the um, like web skimming for payment information. That's the definition for us. We do group tracking based on an ML, we give it a name. Now we've detailed seven groups Um, into one report with some of the underground information as well. So how do they sell this payment information? How do they make their profit? And it's now a, I think, 58 report as a final page count. Um, And we're publishing that next week. So um, that that should be, for us, really exciting uh, to finally have it out there. So everybody has sort of the same level of information. We're all at the same baseline um, because everybody's looking at it from a different angle, um, I saw a lot of uh, incident response people who would look at the breaches at companies where the skimmer was placed. There were people looking at um, victims that were entering payment information. Uh, but nobody, nobody really has the uh, sort of insight from the risk IQ data set, which is we crawl the internets and we crawl the websites and we see you know, all these skimmers on these different websites. And we're able to identify specific grouping based on Infrastructure, you know, unique points on their MO of how they're doing the skimming, um, and with this report, we basically we we took a timeline, we went all the way to the beginning, and we've defined all the different groups, or at least we've defined seven of the groups that we track. There's a whole bunch more we actually track, but we we've defined seven to explain how did they get from you know breaching and stealing payment information to doing skimming um, on a web page. And how has that evolved over the past years? Um, and that's what this, you know, major report is about. It's it's a really long report. I think it sort of, you know, it's my new record of fifty eight pages. My previous <laughs> one was fifty two. Um, but um, it's just to give everybody the same basic knowledge, show all the different variations of how this is happening, how they're doing it, um, and go from there. Because the the way we're doing online payments right now is a big problem. It, something needs to change. I don't know exactly what. What I'm thinking about is we need to have a special way of treating payment information on a website or in the web browser. Um, but the, the way we're currently doing it is just uh, very problematic and very easy to get to, uh, which is the reason why this whole web skimming thing uh, grew way out of proportions.
0: Yeah, it's crazy with all the pin and chip and talk about that and all this other uh, PCI regulation that's constantly involving and the deprecation of TLS. I can't help but feel, but a lot of the issues that we saw in the late 90s with credit card issues and and, and shopping carts are still present uh, God, almost 20 years later.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's the new variation of it. It's, you know, um, they used to do point-of-sale skimming, place some malware on a point-of-sale device and, you know, pull it out of memory. Now, extend that concept to websites. It's the same thing. The only problem is on a website... The the point where you're putting in payment information is just as accessible by the user putting it in as the scripts that are creating the page and the bad guy that loads in some extra script. It's just a new evolution on payment scheming, and it's you know it's super lightweight. Um, what we saw before, what they would do when they compromise like a, a Magento based store, for example, they would modify the PHP code to exfiltrate the payment data when somebody hit the payment button. Now the problem is. They would all do this at the same time and a lot of times with uh, automated tooling. So a new Magento vulnerability comes out and they all point their tools at all the websites they know about. And they would just break all these stores because those tools wouldn't take into account the fact that somebody else also modified the PHP code. And if you break the PHP code, all these websites would just break. So you would see like waves and waves of Magento stores just erroring out and giving all kinds of errors because the sites were just completely broken and just went offline. So... This web skimming it's just it's a new iteration it's very lightweight it's not impactful for anybody um and there's so many unique angles to go at and and we're detailing seven of those in the report um but it's yeah it's just a new iteration and uh, the problem with it um you see a lot less of this at least in the netherlands and i know in the the rest of the eu um because we have for example my my dutch bank um uh, they're called Rebel Bank. Uh, what they have is um, whenever you do a transaction, you have to give a TAN code or an OTP, so a one-time password, for every online transaction you do. Because they don't trust whoever is issuing the transaction. They want you to physically confirm it. Um, we have like a small device. It's like a little bit smaller than a, a, an average size sm- a smartphone. You put in your card and you are effectively signing um, your transaction with a key based on the physical card you have. So if somebody skims your initial payment information, they can't do anything because online payments are always verified with this transaction system. Now, in the U.S., there's a variation. So they will do transactions where you have to do, you put in your CVV, so um, you put in this code from the back of your card. But the problem is if you have all this information, you can do a transaction. Now, some banks in the U.S., what they do is they say, the first five times you do a transaction with a merchant, we don't know yet, which is the first time you've used this merchant um, you know, on your card. Um, the first five times, we'll do like a text message and you have to confirm it, which is you know OTP style, sort of 10 code style, um, but they'll do it the first five times. Now the problem is, um, which is actually a good example to this, one of the groups we track does reshipping with the stolen card information. So what they will do is they will, in the U.S., buy expensive tech and ship it back to Eastern Europe to resell it. Now, where they would buy this tech would be big online retailers that everybody is using anyway. So those five first transactions which they're confirming with a new merchant probably already happened because the merchants they are using are the same one that everybody is using. So that whole like confirmation step goes out of the window. Um and, and that's what I've been seeing. I mean, all those, the big breaches where people can just, you know, uh, take track one, track two data from a card because you just swipe your card. And you don't have to do any confirmation. It's just a magnet swipe. Um, that was pretty interesting to see. Like in the, in the Netherlands, we introduced um, uh, chip usage pretty early on. Um, and our, our point of sale was very isolated. It would do a transaction on its own Um it would need a a, a telephone line connection. So it was an instant transaction with the bank to confirm if somebody had funds and then, you know, do a transaction. Um, But because the U.S. has this concept of, you know, doing a magnet swipe, doing a payment and even being able to process it later if you have a transaction ID um, makes it very, um, a very attractive target for these types of attacks. It's just the way that payment is handled um, in the U.S. uh, makes it a very big, uh, big target. I think the way to go for a lot of you know banks and financial organizations is add this physical check. I know it's a pain and it's like a um, a thing for users. It's like an extra step they have to do and they don't want to interfere with users. That's a lot of it. Um, but in the Netherlands, they just said, well, we don't want fraud. We don't want anybody to reuse a card if it's not you. So we'll force you to confirm the transaction, um, which I think is a, a really good way uh, to go, so I'm just, I'm hoping U.S. banks will start to implement this, um, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to get my hopes up.
0: Yeah, it's it's still, I think, a long road to go because uh, everybody kind of points their fingers at somebody else with this issue.
1: Yeah, and you know, on one thing that people need to consider, a lot of people get mad at the the companies when they get com- compromised. Keep in mind, they are also a victim. Maybe they weren't doing security as well as they could have. Um, But keep in mind, they're still a victim. Um, And and that's one thing, you know, the people that pay and get their information stolen, those are victims. But the online stores are also just as much. And at times, because of fines and everything that's going to happen to them, they are a victim even more.
0: Yeah. Well, I greatly thank you for taking your time to uh, speak to me today. Where else can people find you online?
1: So I'm mostly venting my thoughts on Twitter, (laughs) as a whole lot of other people so uh, on there, uh, my name, my full name is Jonathan Daniel Kleinsma. My name on Twitter is YD, and then my last name K L I J N S M A. So, the first initials, and then my last name Kleinsma.
0: I will uh, be sure to put that in the show notes, as well as links to uh, the blog. I see you have some stuff on uh, the Risk IQ, as well as a cool link to uh, being on Krebs. So I'll make sure to uh, get all that in the show notes.
1: All right. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. We'll talk soon. Thanks.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com, where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.